Welcome to today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. I'm your reader, Erica Dubenbars. Here is our first story. Family, faith, focus of GOP event, but sharp edges emerge offstage by Hannah Fingerhut of the Associated Press. A trio of Republican presidential candidates shared stories of family and faith before hundreds of voters in northwest Iowa on Saturday, having congenial individual conversations with their hosts not long after dueling at the campaign's latest fractious debate. But off the stage at a small Christian college in Sioux Center, the rival's sharp edges reemerged. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley and businessman Vivek Ramaswamy leaned on their families to drive home their origin stories without other candidates interrupting at the event held in a rural conservative corner of a state that holds the leadoff contest on the election calendar in about a month. Later, DeSantis and Ramaswamy both went after Haley, a further sign that her opponents see her as a growing threat in the 2024 race, where former President Donald Trump, who skipped the event, is the frontrunner in polls of Republicans nationwide and Iowa, where the caucuses are set for January 15th. After DeSantis's time with the moderators, U.S. Representative Randy Feenstra and his wife Lynette, he returned to a recurring campaign theme. Haley's campaign is funded by liberal Democrats and Wall Street donors, and she is, quote, taking positions that are more palatable to those folks, unquote. Ramaswamy told reporters that his criticisms of Haley at Wednesday night's debate were intended to illustrate the, quote, deep ideological divide, unquote, in the Republican Party. He said he was unfairly being criticized himself for targeting Haley, the only woman in the race. It's part of a double standard that the people in this country are sick of when it comes to identity politics, he said. The good news is, I'm not letting them get away with that. Haley did not speak to the news media after her appearance. Steve Rader, 59, was relieved to hear from candidates without the, quote, crossfire, unquote. He said he is deciding between supporting Haley or DeSantis, but, quote, really likes, unquote, Haley and her debate performance. The way she had to stand while she was being attacked at the last debate. I know she just wanted to come unglued at the guy, but she stood there, said the livestock farmer from Hawarden. On the stage before about 750 people, including many students from Dort University, each candidate discussed faith, family, and politics. Also appearing was Pastor Ryan Binkley, who has not qualified for any debates. DeSantis was accompanied by wife Casey. Haley sat with her 25-year-old daughter, Raina. Ramaswamy brought his three-year-old son, Karthik. Feenstra said it was a unique chance for people to hear the candidates' principles and positions, unlike the debates that left little time for real answers from candidates because of infighting and bickering. Feenstra said he may endorse in the race, but has not yet. I want them to make their own decision based on what they're hearing, he told reporters. They can make that decision on their own without some politician telling them this is what has to happen. The three candidates are making stops across Iowa all weekend as pressure mounts for an attention-grabbing performance in the caucuses. As for the absent Trump, I'd love to hear his stance on faith and family, Feenstra said. I think that'd be very important to Northwest Iowa and all of Iowa. Rader agreed saying it was admirable for candidates to come to Sioux County and share their faith values, while Trump was the, quote, right guy at the right time, unquote, and was a great president, Rader said he needs to shut his mouth.
I don't know how he would handle this kind of setting, Raider said about the Faith and Family event, but maybe he should be here so we could see that part. End of story. Ramaswamy Not Exploring Libertarian Presidential Bid by Caleb McAuliffe with the Globe Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Vivek Ramaswamy has been courting Iowa libertarians in his bid for the GOP presidential nomination, but he denied he is considering a run for president on the libertarian ticket. Members of Ramaswamy's campaign met with the Polk County libertarians on Wednesday to encourage them to support the candidate in the caucuses, said Ryan Kurt, chair of the local party. Kurt said he spoke with Ramaswamy at an event focused on carbon capture pipelines recently and suggested he run as a libertarian. Kurt said Ramaswamy told him, don't count me out of the libertarian nomination, as if it was something that was in his range of options, but not necessarily actively pursuing. But at the meeting between Ramaswamy's staff and the local party, Kurt said campaign officials were clear that Ramaswamy is not planning to switch parties. At an event in Muscatine on Friday, the Ohio biotech entrepreneur said he is not considering a third-party bid for president. We are bringing libertarians into the Republican America First movement, he said. Absolutely, we are talking to non-traditional Republican caucus goers. I am going to college campuses, and we are reaching out to communities that have not been traditionally part of the Republican Party. I am running for president as a Republican. I will not be running for president on a different ticket. Ramaswamy often says he is looking to leverage support from people who aren't traditionally Republican caucus-goers, including libertarians, independents, and young voters, to build up his support on caucus night. The campaign has had staff attend libertarian events to encourage them to register as Republicans and support Ramaswamy in the presidential caucuses, his spokesperson Trisha McLaughlin said. But she said Ramaswamy is not considering a run under the party's banner. McLaughlin said at Ramaswamy's events, about half of the attendees are traditional Republicans, while the other half have never caucused before. So that's leaving a whole 50% that is either libertarian, politically unaffiliated, independent, disaffected Democrats, she said. So there's a whole swath of people that are not caucusing for Republicans that we're trying to bring over. Ramaswamy has held dozens of campaign stops across the state in recent weeks, but he struggled to drum up support from Iowa voters according to recent polling. A recent Iowa State University poll conducted by Civics pegged his support at 6% among likely Republican caucus-goers. Libertarian Caucuses In a statement on Friday, the Libertarian Party of Iowa encouraged voters to participate in its caucuses and make their vote from among the party's primary candidates. Candidates running for the party's presidential nomination include former Georgia U.S. Senate candidate Chase Oliver, Mike Termott of Florida, and Joshua Smith of Iowa. At a time when entrenched duopolies often dominate the narrative, the LPIA stands firm in its commitment to fostering an environment where Americans have a genuine array of choices, Libertarian Party of Iowa Chair Jules Cutler said in a statement. The Libertarian Party achieved major party status in Iowa after the 2022 election, and it will hold its own organizing caucuses on January 15th, the same night Republicans and Democrats will hold their caucuses. According to the Iowa Secretary of State's office, there are 8,471 active registered Libertarians in the state and more than 7,000 inactive Libertarian voters. While attendees can cast a vote for a candidate at the Libertarian caucuses, the result is not binding and the party's nominee is chosen at its national convention in May. 
Kurt said he agrees that libertarians should participate in the libertarian caucuses. He also said he does not think Ramaswamy would be successful as a libertarian candidate. I'm for whatever advances liberty the most, and right now I think that's going to be getting the best possible libertarian candidate on the ticket, he said. System a, quote, sad reality, unquote. Ramaswamy, running on a message of unifying disparate political groups around anti-establishment and ultra-conservative policy positions, has frequently criticized Republican Party leadership like Ronna McDaniel, the National Party's chair. Ramaswamy has said he voted for a libertarian candidate in the 2004 presidential election over opposition to both Republican President George W. Bush and Democratic nominee John Kerry. He did not vote again until 2020, when he cast his vote for former President Donald Trump. He has often contrasted himself with the Republican Party and said he is using the ticket only as a, quote, vehicle, unquote, to advance his agenda, which he sees as transcending party lines. At the Carbon Capture Pipeline event, Ramaswamy told reporters that he was running as a Republican, in part because the two major parties are the only viable path to becoming president. The sad reality is that we have a system that is baked by the establishment that I don't think is serving the people of the country, he said. If you're really serious about running for president, I don't think that there's a viable independent route to do it. David Hoddle of the Muscatine Journal contributed to this story. End of story. War in Ukraine. Zelensky to visit U.S. Biden aims to increase pressure on lawmakers to okay financial help by Mark Sherman of the Associated Press. President Joe Biden and Ukraine's leader, Vladimir Zelensky, will meet at the White House on Tuesday as the U.S. administration steps up the pressure on Congress to provide billions more in aid to Kiev in its war with Russia. The visit is intended to an undercover underscore the United States' unshakable commitment to supporting the people of Ukraine as they defend themselves against Russia's brutal invasion, the White House said in a statement Sunday. As Russia ramps up its missile and drone strikes against Ukraine, the leaders will discuss Ukraine's urgent needs and the vital importance of the United States' continued support at this critical moment. Zelensky's office confirmed that he had accepted Biden's invitation. He also has been asked to speak to a meeting of all senators. Biden has asked Congress for a $110 billion package of wartime funding for Ukraine, $61.4 billion, and Israel, along with other national security priorities. But the request is caught up in a debate over U.S. immigration policy and border security. Congress already has allocated $111 billion to assist Ukraine, and Biden's budget director, Shalanda Young, said in a letter this past week to House and Senate leaders that the U.S. will run out of funding to send weapons and assistance to Ukraine by the end of the year. It's time to cut a deal that both sides can agree to, Young said Sunday. The stakes are especially high for Ukraine, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said during two television interviews Sunday, given that, quote, we are running out of funding, unquote, for the Ukrainians. Earlier, he defended the emergency sale to Israel of nearly 14,000 rounds of tank ammunition and also called for quick congressional approval of the foreign assistance. Blinken said the needs of Israel's military operations in Gaza justify the rare decision to bypass Congress. Israel is in combat right now with Hamas, he said, and we want to make sure that Israel has what it needs to defend itself against Hamas. 
the tank ammunition and related support constitute only a small portion of military sales to Israel, Blinken said, and that the rest remain subject to congressional review. It's very important that Congress's voice be heard in this, he said. Blinken noted that Biden has said he is willing to make significant compromises to get the aid package moving. It's something the president is fully prepared to engage on, Blinken said. Also on Sunday, battles raged across Gaza as Israel indicated it was prepared to fight for months or longer to defeat the territory's Hamas rulers, and a key mediator said willingness to discuss a ceasefire was fading. Israel faces international outrage after its military offensive, with diplomatic support and arms from close ally the United States, has killed thousands of Palestinian civilians. About 90% of Gaza's 2.3 million people have been displaced within the besieged territory, where UN agencies say there is no safe place to flee. The United States has lent vital support in recent days by vetoing a United Nations Security Council resolution to end the fighting and pushing through an emergency sale of over $100 million worth of tank ammunition to Israel. Russia backed the resolution. Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Sunday spoke to Russian President Vladimir Putin and expressed dissatisfaction with, quote, anti-Israel positions, unquote, taken by Moscow's envoys at the U.N. and elsewhere, an Israeli statement said. The U.N. General Assembly scheduled an emergency meeting Tuesday to vote on a draft resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Riyad Mansour, the Palestinian ambassador to the U.N., told the Associated Press that it's similar to the Security Council resolution the U.S. vetoed Friday. There are no vetoes in the General Assembly, but unlike the Security Council, its resolutions are not legally binding. They are important, nonetheless, as a barometer of global opinion. Israel's air and ground war has killed thousands of Palestinians, mostly civilians, since the October 7th attack by Hamas, and other militants killed 1,200 people and captured around 240. Over 100 of them were released during a week-long ceasefire last month. With very little aid allowed in, Palestinians face severe shortages of food, water, and other basic goods. Some observers openly worry that Palestinians will be forced out of Gaza altogether. Expect public order to completely break down soon, and an even worse situation could unfold, including epidemic diseases and increased pressure for mass displacement into Egypt, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres told a forum in Qatar, a key intermediary. Ilan Levi, an an Israeli government spokesman, called allegations of mass displacement from Gaza, quote, outrageous and false, unquote. Qatar's Prime Minister, Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad al-Tani, told the forum that mediation efforts seeking to stop the war and have all hostages released will continue, but, quote, unfortunately, we are not seeing the same willingness that we had seen in the weeks before, unquote. End of story. News Digest. Philadelphia students protest anti-Semitism. Students, lawmakers, and religious leaders joined forces Sunday at a temple in Philadelphia to strongly denounce anti-Semitism on college campuses and in their communities. The gathering at Congregation Rodef Shalom came one day after University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill resigned amid criticism over her testimony at a congressional hearing. McGill was unable to say under repeated questioning that calls on campus for the genocide of Jews would violate the school's conduct policy. 
I have seen Pennsylvanians take actions big and small, and both matter to combat anti-Semitism, Governor Josh Shapiro, a Democrat, said at the event. I've seen it here in Philadelphia where students raised their voices, where students made sure they were heard in the halls of power at their university, and leadership was held accountable. Musk Restores Account of Conspiracy Theorist Elon Musk has restored the ex-account of conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, pointing to a poll on the social media platform formerly known as Twitter that came out in favor of the InfoWars host who repeatedly called the 2012 Sandy Hook school shooting a hoax. It poses new uncertainty for advertisers, who have fled X over concerns about hate speech appearing alongside their ads, and is the latest divisive public personality to get back their banned account. Musk posted a poll on Saturday asking if Jones should be reinstated, with the result showing 70% of those who responded in favor. Early Sunday, Musk tweeted, The people have spoken, and so it shall be. Briefly, Vessels Targeted The Chinese Coast Guard targeted Philippine vessels with water cannon blasts Sunday and rammed one of them, causing damage and endangering Filipino crew members off a disputed shoal in the South China Sea, Philippine officials said. Osprey Crash Air Force divers on Sunday recovered the remains of the 7th of the eight crew members from a U.S. military Osprey aircraft that crashed November 29th off southern Japan during a training mission. Priest attacked. A Sioux City, Iowa man was arrested in the stabbing death of Reverend Stephen Gutskull, a Catholic priest who was attacked over the weekend in a church rectory in a small Nebraska community, authorities said. Kier L. Williams, 43, faces charges of homicide and using a weapon to commit a felony. Washington County Sheriff Mike Robinson said in a statement. Yemen. France said Sunday that one of its warships in the Red Sea was targeted by two drones coming from Yemen. Both were intercepted and shot down. A short statement from the Army's ministry did not say who fired the drones on Saturday night. Atlanta shooting. A shooting in Atlanta killed three people and left one victim wounded Saturday evening, police said. The Atlanta Police Department said three victims in their 20s were pronounced dead at the scene and the fourth was transported to a hospital. Sudan. Sudan's warring generals agreed to hold a face-to-face meeting as part of efforts to establish a ceasefire and initiate political talks to end the country's devastating war, an African regional bloc said Sunday. Digest from the Associated Press. NFL Roundup. Brown survived Jag's late rally. From the Associated Press. Joe Flacco threw for 311 yards and three touchdowns in his home debut for Cleveland, and the Browns survived a late rally by Trevor Lawrence and the Jacksonville Jaguars for a 31-27 win Sunday. The 38-year-old Flacco, who was only signed three weeks ago by the Browns, delivered the kind of performance he had almost annually as a visitor with Baltimore. Flacco went 26 of 45 and improved to 10-2 as a starter in Cleveland. Lawrence played despite spraining his right ankle Monday night. He threw a season-high three interceptions before bringing the Jaguars back in the fourth quarter. Bills 20, Chiefs 17. Josh Allen threw for 233 yards with touchdowns running and throwing. The Bills kicked a go-ahead field goal with one one minute and 54 seconds to go, and thanks to a crucial penalty on Chiefs wide receiver Kadarius Toney, Buffalo held on to win in Kansas City. The Chiefs thought they'd taken the lead with less than two minutes remaining when Patrick Mahomes hit Travis Kelsey over the middle, and the high school quarterback threw far 
across the field to Tony, who ran the rest of the 49 yards for a touchdown. Only one problem. Tony had lined up offside. The penalty wiped out the play. Bears 28, Lions 13. Justin Fields threw for a touchdown and ran for another, and host Chicago played its most impressive game of the season, beating NFC North-leading Detroit. Receiver DJ Moore had his first career rushing touchdown and caught a scoring pass to help Chicago win for the third time in four games. Ravens 37, Rams 31, overtime. Tylen Wallace returned a punt 76 yards for a touchdown in overtime to lift host Baltimore over Los Angeles, snapping the Rams' three-game winning streak. Jets 30, Texans 6. Zach Wilson threw a pair of second-half touchdown passes in his return from a two-game benching. Host New York shut down C.J. Stroud before Houston's star rookie quarterback left late with a concussion, and the Jets ended a five-game losing streak. Wilson was 27 of 36 for 301 yards. Bengals 34, Colts 14. Jake Browning threw two touchdown passes and ran for another in his second straight outstanding performance for Cincinnati, which pounded Indianapolis at home. Saints 28, Panthers 6. Derek Carr returned from a recent concussion and upper body injuries to throw touchdown passes to Chris Olav and Jimmy Graham, and host New Orleans beat hapless Carolina. 49ers 28, Seahawks 16. Debo Samuel scored on a catch and a run as host San Francisco won its 11th straight division game, beating Seattle. Broncos 24, Chargers 7. Russell Wilson threw two touchdowns and Denver won at the Chargers after Los Angeles lost quarterback Justin Herbert due to a finger injury in the first half. Wilson completed 21 of 33 for 224 yards, including a 46-yard touchdown to Cortland Sutton in the third quarter. Vikings 3, Raiders 0. Minnesota and Las Vegas played the lowest-scoring NFL game in 16 years, with Greg Joseph's 36-year-old field goal lifting the, Viking, lifting the Vikings on the road. Buccaneers 29, Falcons 25. Baker Mayfield threw an 11-yard touchdown pass to Cade Otten with 31 seconds remaining, capping a wild fourth quarter that pushed Tampa Bay into a tie for the first place for first place in the NFC South by winning at Atlanta. Cowboys 33, Eagles 13. Dak Prescott threw for two touchdowns, Brandon Aubrey made four field goals, and Dallas beat Philadelphia for its 15th straight home win. Aubrey extended his NFL record by going 30-for-30 on field goals to start his career. End of story. Men's College Basketball Thankful Bronny James makes college debut in Southern California loss. Game comes five months after cardiac arrest. Story by Beth Harris of the Associated Press. Bronny James showed off his defensive skills in his college debut for Southern California nearly five months after he suffered cardiac arrest and expressed gratitude for the doctors and family who supported him. He had four points, three rebounds, and two assists on Sunday, coming off the bench play in front of his superstar father, LeBron James. I just want to say I'm thankful for everything, Bronny James said afterward in brief comments to a horde of media. He thanked the Mayo Clinic, where he received treatment, as well as his parents, siblings, coach Andy Enfield, and his teammates during this hard time in my life. Quote, he left without taking any questions. 
The Trojans lost in overtime to Long Beach State, 84-79. James walked off with his deflated teammates and didn't greet his father, who sat courtside. James logged 16 minutes, including starting the five-minute extra session, but he wasn't a factor then before coming out for the last time. He was one of three shooting, hitting a three-pointer in the second half. His biggest impression came on defense. All of James's rebounds were on the defensive glass, and he had two steals. I thought Bronny played well, Enfield said. He defended at a high level. He guarded the quick ball handlers on the other team pretty well. James was quick to pass to his teammates, even when it appeared he could have taken a shot. Enfield said James's minutes would continue to be monitored by USC's medical staff. He played six minutes in the first half when the Trojans led 45-30 at the break. In his second three-minute stint, James made a huge block on Jaden Jones, who was streaking to the basket on a fast break, riling up the fans. James assisted on a dunk by Vincent Iwuchikwu, who also suffered cardiac arrest as a freshman. He returned to play 14 games last season. It's great to see Bronny out there. He's put a lot of work in the gym, Iwuchikwu said. We talked before the game, and I told him to go out there and have fun. James entered the game for the first time about seven minutes in, with some in the crowd standing and cheering. He missed his first shot, a three-point attempt. Moments before, he tipped the ball away from a Long Beach State player, but the visitors got it back. The possession ended in a shot clock violation for the beach. James also snagged a rebound. He makes the right play all the time, said Boogie Ellis, USC's top guard. Everybody wants a guy like that on their team. He defends well at a high level. LeBron James arrived seconds before the national anthem, holding hands with nine-year-old daughter Zuri, and tapped his son's rear as he passed the Trojans, who were lined up across the court for the anthem. It was exciting for everybody to see him out there, Enfield said, and I'm sure his family was the most excited. The NBA was well represented in the game. One of James's teammates is DJ Rodman, the son of Dennis Rodman, who fouled out. The Beach's roster includes Chase Polonese, the son of 15-year-old of 15-year NBA veteran Olden Polonese. James joined his teammates for the on-court warm-ups 90 minutes before tip-off. Wearing a white USC shirt and red sweatpants, he took a variety of jumpers under the watchful lenses of a baseline full of photographers. End of story. Around the NFL. Ex-Titan Wychik, 52, dies after home fall. Three-time pro bowler Frank Wychik, who threw the lateral that started the Music City miracle launching the Tennessee Titans' run to the franchise's lone Super Bowl appearance, has died. He was 52. Wychik died at his Chattanooga home after an apparent fall where he hit his head Saturday morning, according to a statement from his family, released through the legacy consulting firm. His family said Sunday, with great sadness, that Wycheck was found Saturday afternoon. His family will be following Wycheck's wishes to work with experts for CTE research and ongoing brain injury, TBI. Funeral services have not been scheduled yet. End of story. You are listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind. All material heard on Iris is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Erica Dubinbars. If you have any comments on this or any other Iris program, please give us a call at 
243-6833. And now, I'll read the Fort Dodge Messenger. Electric vehicles impress at Farm News Ag Show. CJ Bio America gives back as Ag Show sponsor by Lori Berglund. Cutting-edge technology, new ideas, and a chance to talk about all things farmers talk about when they gather, from the markets to the weather, put a sheen on the final day of the CJ Bio America Farm News Ag Show at the Webster County Fairground Saturday. Farmers turned out to have something good to eat, from pancakes in the morning to beef at noon, and to hear from all the exhibitors and speakers who took to the stage. Matt Johnson of Fort Dodge Ford was first up on Saturday and had farmers kicking the tires and talking about the prospects of Ford's new EV F-150. Long after Johnson's presentation, farmers were still walking around the gleaming truck that may not be right for everyone, but sure prompted plenty of interest. I like this pickup, said Rick Hotzclair. I don't know enough about electric vehicles, but I was just at the Senex annual meeting in Minneapolis, and that was the big subject. It will take time, but it's good to learn more. Dan Kramer of Fort Dodge was impressed with the presentation. Actually, I have rode in this truck, and it's nice, Kramer said. Kramer said he has friends and family members who drive vehicles with many different power sources, from traditional gas engines to hybrids to diesel, and now electric. Kramer said it's up to individuals to decide what's right for them. Johnson couldn't agree more. EVs are an emerging choice in the market, and Johnson sought to help the crowd learn more about the option. To anyone who looks under the hood of an EV for the first time, it can be a surprise. Instead of a big internal combustion engine, there's a quote, frunk, for front trunk. There's room for storage and even a cooler with a drain. On this EV, the engine is replaced by dual electric motors on each axle. Johnson clearly enjoyed engaging with the crowd, taking questions, and noting that electric vehicles are simply one more choice in the marketplace filled with many options. This is just one part of our portfolio, Johnson said. We have something for everybody. CJ BioAmerica gives back to community. CJ BioAmerica served as sponsor again this year and will be back as sponsor in 2024. Todd Anderson, Senior External Relations Coordinator for CJ BioAmerica, said the company enjoys giving back to the community. Meeting farmers and business people visiting the show was the fun part for Anderson. I like the networking aspect, Anderson said. It's great to come out and talk to farmers, manufacturers, and get to know people. The show was also a chance to help visitors learn more about what CJ BioAmerica does and how it works with other local businesses. New Co-op is one of our business partners, Anderson said. We produce a liquid fertilizer for them. And this show has been great because people have come in and said, I love your product. Being a part of the show and helping make it happen every year with Farm News has been an enjoyable venture, according to Anderson. We really enjoy being part of Fort Dodge, Webster County, and we love to give back to this community, he said. Drones see rapid growth. SkyDrones USA was another exhibitor offering a look at new and emerging technology. Herb Douse, co-founder of Answer Ag in St. Ansgar, was happy to explain how drones can be utilized on today's farms. You can use this spraying anything you need to put down, Douse said. You can also seed cover crops. Smaller drones, which are used to inspect for crop health, were also on display. Farmers can use the drones to look for deficiencies, stand counts, or whatever they want to know about how a crop is faring. Douse predicts rapid growth in the industry. In the not-so-distant future, Douse predicted that most farmers would be utilizing drones to assist in their farming operations. 
Larry Bullock and Bill Leenthal of Weisberg Implement and Supply brought their own mascot, Jade, an Australian cattle dog, with them as they chatted with farmers visiting the show. Jade was a friendly ambassador welcoming visitors to the booth. It's always nice to come out and talk with people, tell them what we have to offer, Bullock said. Everybody's been really great. Weisberg had a sizable setup for the show, from augers outside to a lineup of bad boy mowers inside. But that's not all the company offers. If you want it, we can build it, Leinthal said. Visitors to the show also had an opportunity to hear about the new state fuel testing lab under construction by Iowa Central Community College. The lab is going up north of Tom Thumb Drive-In on U.S. Highway 169 and is set for completion in late summer or early 2024, according to Dr. Don Heck, director of the lab for Iowa Central. We are the lab for the state of Iowa, Heck said. We test fuels for quality and make sure they meet all the standards to be legal. We will also troubleshoot when there are problems. The show enjoyed another good run, and exhibitors are looking forward to coming back in 2024. End of story. Delightful. New Lucia crowned, but maiden steal the show. By Hans Madsen. The 2023 Lucia Festival of Light at Stratford Lutheran Church is supposed to be all about crowning a new Lucia for the year. This year, the Lucia Maidens, Graceland Zank, 5, of Stratford, and Allie Milson, 4, of Boone, pretty much stole the show. The pair were tasked with carrying in the Julebach, a straw Yule goat, along with a straw star and heart, then waiting by the Christmas tree as the event, leading to the crowning of a new Lucia, went on around them. This proved a bit too much. The Julebach made it okay after being played with and given a kiss. They're quite durable after all. The star and heart of less interest to the pair ended up hung on the Christmas tree. The pair then emptied out a parent's purse, studied the program, and found various ways to entertain themselves with the tinsel garland of their costumes. They were cute, it was delightful, and yes, they did manage to crown a new Lucia. She is Olivia Bergman, 14, of Stratford. I didn't think I was going to get it, she said. For Bergman, the best part of the day was the reaction she was expecting from her grandmother, Sue Bergman of Stratford. It makes my grandma really happy, she said. After the festival, in good Swedish tradition, there was coffee, cookies, and treats. Bergman got to pass out the Lusikater, which are also known as St. Lucia buns. The buns are flavored with saffron. The 2022 Lucia Bailey Anderson of Patton shared the story of St. Lucia. Her legend stems from Italy, she said. There are many stories and legends of how the legend of Lucia came to Sweden, and while much of her story is woven in the world of myth and legend, we do know that the Swedes now embrace her and love to celebrate St. Lucia Day. The Swedish tradition began in the 1920s when a newspaper in Stockholm held a contest to choose a Lucia to represent the city, she explained. The custom then spread. Today, over 100 years later, Lucia is celebrated in practically every Swedish home and community, she said. Each December 13th, young girls awaken early in the morning. Usually the eldest daughter, she will dress in a white gown, red sash, and with a crown of candles on her head. She'll serve saffron buns, pepper cocker, coffee, and glog to her parents. That last part, the early morning thing, for both Anderson and Bergman, isn't happening. I'll take a soft pass, Bergman said. The event is sponsored by the Swedish Foundation of Iowa's Swede Bend Settlement Incorporated. End of story. 
Fort Dodge City Council to Begin Budget Work, Tax Abatements on Agenda, by Bill Shea. The Fort Dodge City Council will begin its work on the proposed 2023-2024 budget when it meets this evening. The spending plan that is being developed is for the fiscal year that begins July 1, 2024. However, state law requires cities to have their budgets done by mid-March. To meet that deadline, city manager David Fierk and his staff started working on the budget weeks ago, and the elected officials will begin their efforts tonight. The council meeting will begin at 5 p.m. in the municipal building, 819 First Avenue South, with a budget workshop. The council will review the proposed budgets for the water and sanitary sewer systems, plus the Fort Dodge Fiber Municipal Broadband Utility. Also, the council will examine proposed road use tax spending. The road use tax is the city's share of gasoline tax revenue and vehicle registration fees. It pays for road maintenance, snow removal, street sweeping, and related work. The council's regular business meeting will start at 6 p.m. in the municipal building. During that meeting, the council will consider a more aggressive property tax abatement incentive for developing new multifamily housing. The proposal before the council would implement a 90% tax abatement for 10 years for rehabilitation of apartments downtown, in addition to new construction of multifamily housing. End of story. Opinion. Messenger Editorial. 4-H members demonstrate leadership, service. They are among the future leaders of our communities and our nation. A tremendous amount of young talent was gathered under one roof in Fort Dodge recently. The occasion was the Webster County 4-H Award Celebration, which brought together the student club members and their adult leaders and other supporters. Throughout the evening, the event lived up to its name, as a long list of awards was presented. They included a variety of club and project honors, special awards, scholarships, and volunteer recognition awards. 4-H members who will graduate from high school this spring were saluted as they wind down their years in the club. It was a memorable night for the 4-H members, whose awards will be cherished for years. But it was also a remarkable night for those of us who weren't there and have no connection to 4-H. The evening was remarkable for the rest of us because it demonstrated that there is a large group of young people in our community who are dedicated to learning and serving. And the 4-H kids aren't the only ones like that. There are other young people doing the same thing in scouting, church groups, and sports. These are the kids who will grow up to be the future leaders of our churches, schools, communities, and ultimately our nation. It is worth remembering that we have so many youths of such high caliber in our community when it is so easy to focus on negative things. To the kids, we say, good work and keep it up. End of story. Overturning President Biden's costly mandates on Iowa families. Opinion by Randy Feenstra, U.S. Representative representing Iowa's 4th Congressional District. For the last three years, the Biden administration has been defined by reckless government spending, rising prices, and crushing red tape and regulations. These misguided policies have fueled inflation and harmed our economy, making life unaffordable for our families, increasing operating costs for our Main Street businesses, and stifling investment in American jobs and manufacturing. Unfortunately, President Biden's only quote-unquote, solutions call for more government intervention in the economy and more government mandates to advance his agenda at the expense of American families and businesses. This, of course, is the wrong approach. During the month of December, 
House Republicans took action to overturn President Biden's burdensome mandates on Iowa families, farmers, and small businesses in order to spur economic growth and combat inflation. First, we voted to nullify the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's CFPB expanded enforcement of Section 1071 of the Dodd-Frank Act, which requires community banks to collect and report excessive amounts of unrelated personal and financial information from small businesses seeking to take out a loan. This misguided rule would inundate business owners with mountains of paperwork, restrict access to affordable capital capital for small businesses, and violate basic privacy protections by requiring banks to report every detail of every loan they originate, ultimately forcing businesses to close for good. On my 36-county tour, I have met with countless small business owners who are struggling with inflation, high interest rates, and economic uncertainty. Like I warned when President Biden and Democrats in Congress approved trillions in new expenditures, reckless government spending would hurt our families, farmers, and rural main streets. Those predictions have unfortunately come true. The CFPB's small business data collection rule would only make matters worse for our main streets, which is why I voted to eliminate this regulation. Second, we advanced the Choice in Automobile Retail Sales Act, which would prohibit the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, administrator from implementing or enforcing a proposed EPA rule requiring 67% of new vehicle sales to be electric by 2032. President Biden's obsession with electric vehicles is not only costly for Iowa families, but also beneficial for countries like China that produce the critical materials that we need to manufacture EVs. With the passage of this legislation, we rightfully remove power from the EPA and return it to American consumers who should be able to choose the type of car or truck they prefer to drive. The Biden administration's preferences should have no influence. If President Biden truly cares about reducing emissions, he must embrace Iowa biofuels, like ethanol and biodiesel, that can lower gas prices for our families, end our reliance on foreign supply chains, and protect our environment. I will continue to oppose President Biden's hasty transition to electric vehicles and instead advocate for year-round E15 and flex-fuel vehicles. Finally, we passed a congressional resolution overturning the Biden administration's latest student loan forgiveness scheme, which would cost American taxpayers roughly $559 billion. Iowans who never attended college, entered the workforce early, or helped put their kids through school should not be forced to pick up the tab for President Biden's expensive and unfair student loan bailout. The Supreme Court already ruled his plans unconstitutional, and this effort is no different. As inflation and sky-high interest rates crush family budgets and reduce the purchasing power of every dollar earned, my vote to end blanket student loan forgiveness represents my commitment to Iowa taxpayers and my unyielding opposition to reckless government spending and waste. Restoring American economic prosperity and lowering costs for our families, farmers, and businesses begins with ending the Biden administration's destructive federal mandates. As a strong fiscal conservative, I remain committed to this mission on behalf of American taxpayers. End of story. Obituaries. Sarah Thurston, Fort Dodge. Sarah Thurston, 85, of Fort Dodge, died December 8, 2023, at the Paula J. Babber Hospice Home. Private family services will be held at a later date. 
Gunderson Funeral Home and Cremation Services is entrusted with the arrangements. Sarah Ann Kindred, the oldest child of Roy and Stella Vance Kindred, was born April 20th, 1938 in Lake City, Iowa. She graduated from Rockwell City High School. Sarah was employed for over 20 years at the telephone company and in retirement was a campground host at Kennedy Park. Survivors include her son, Charles Chuck, married to Karen Vader of Havelock, stepchildren, Vicki Niles of Gilmore City, Bill Thurston of Thornton, CO, Connie, married to John Jordan of Ames, and Lisa Toole of Gilmore City, 16 grandchildren and 19 great-grandchildren. She was preceded in death by her husband, Jimmy Thurston, her son, Vint Vader, infant daughter, Peggy Sue Vader, and her brothers, Terry Kindred, Bill Ludwig, and Hap Ludwig. Nicholas Lance. Nicholas Lance, 32, of Fort Dodge, Iowa, died Friday, December 8th, 2023, in Humboldt, Iowa. Visitation will be held from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. on Friday, December 15th, 2023, at the historic Bruce Funeral Home, 923 First Avenue South. A celebration of life gathering will be from 12 p.m. to 4 p.m. on Saturday, December 16th, 2023, at Dolliver State Park, 2757 Dolliver Park Avenue, Lehigh. Memorials may be directed to the family. Arrangements are with historic Bruce Funeral Home of Fort Dodge. Online condolences may be left for the family at www.brucesfuneralhome.com. Dean Haynes. Services will be held at 4 p.m. on Saturday, December 16, 2023, at the historic Bruce Funeral Home. Visitation will be one hour prior to the service. www.brucesfuneralhome.com. James Jim Erdl, Fort Dodge. James Jim Paul Erdl, 87, of Fort Dodge, passed away on Friday, December 8, 2023, at Southfield Wellness Community Community in Webster City. Jim's wish was to donate his body to science. A memorial service will be held at 3 p.m. on Saturday, December 16, 2023, at the Gunderson Funeral Chapel. Visitation will be held from 1.30 to 3 p.m. prior to the service at Gunderson Funeral Home and Cremation Services. Jim was born on July 6, 1936, to David and Mary Witt Erdl. He grew up in Fort Dodge. After graduating from high school, he served in the U.S. Army, Air Force, and the Air National Guard. He was united in marriage to Barbara Berry on June 4, 1960, in Duncombe, Iowa. They made their home in Fort Dodge until Jim was called back into the Air Force, serving in Denver, Colorado. Upon returning to Iowa, Jim started his first restaurant, the Townhouse Cafe in Belmond. He then continued in the restaurant business in Fort Dodge, owning, operating, and managing numerous businesses with his friend and business partner, Tom Kearney. He was known by the Colonial Inn, the Fort Dodge's Country Club, Dairy Queens, Erdl Seasoning, Catering, and running the Iowa Central Community College Food Service. Over the years, he was a member of the Knights of Columbus, the Lions Club, and the Elks Club. Jim enjoyed playing golf, gardening, traveling the world, and loved spending time with his family and grandchildren. Jim is survived by his wife, Barb, of Fort Dodge, children Jay Erdl and Sean Alan Rodenborn of Fort Dodge, Cam Renee Erdl, and Barry Erdl of Peoria, Arizona. Grandchildren Nicholas Erdl, Cody Jessica Rodenborn, Courtney Amanda 
Erdl, Brennan Erdl, Gavin Erdl, Emma Taryn Erdl, and Caleb Caitlin Erdl. Great-grandchildren Wesley and Ryder Rodenborn and Beckett Winkler, his siblings Nancy Bob Horstmeyer, Margaret Laird, and Charles Judy Erdl. Jim was preceded in death by his son, Tad, parents, David and Mary, siblings, Mona Drown, Betty Moberly, David Erdl, John Jack Erdl, Joyce Ashton, Veronica Lunn, Fran Fran Menifee, and Jerry Erdl. Memorials may be left to the discretion of the family. End of obituaries. Sports. Dodgers second at Council Bluffs. Davidson Ross win individual titles for third-ranked Fort Dodge wrestling team by Eric Pratt. Fort Dodge continues to progress at a pace that makes head coach Bobby Thompson excited about the team's long-term outlook on the mat. The third-ranked Dodgers were the Council Bluffs Classic runner-up on Saturday, finishing behind only number 7 Waukee Northwest in the final team standings. Thompson's squad crowned multiple champions here for the first time since 2017 and brought home the silver trophy for a second consecutive season in the 43-team field. I think we made huge gains, Thompson said. It's a process, but we're really coming together and showing signs that we're hungry to keep getting better every day. It's a good mix of kids who want to accomplish big things this year. We'll be better in February than we are right now. They'll make sure of it. Number one, Drayshawn Ross, and number three, Coy Davidson, were victorious at 215 and 138 pounds, respectively. Ross, 14-0, edged Cy Cruz of Totino Grace in a finals matchup of nationally ranked standouts. 3-1 in sudden victory. Davidson, 14-0, put on a show, defeating four top or second-rated opponents from their respective states and climbing to the top of the podium as the number 10 seed. Ross prevailed in the semifinals, 6-3. He racked up bonus points in his first five matches. Davidson took down top-ranked Nebraska 138-pounder Braden Knoyer in the semis, then defeated number one Carter Freeman of Waukee Northwest for gold, 2-1. Given Drayshawn's injured shoulder, he's been unbelievable so far, Thompson said. He's obviously had to change his strategy some, but he's finding different ways to get the job done, which is great to see. Coy is definitely dialed in. He felt like he had something to prove, and he proved it. His last four matches were close, score-wise, against some outstanding competition. Second-rated Dodger senior and future Iowa Hawkeye Drew Ayala, 14-1, reached the finals at 120 before bowing out to unbeatable Kiernan Mike of Millard South, Nebraska. Senior Demarion Ross, 11-2, was third at 190 pounds. Classmate Kane Butcherick, 11-4, finished 4th at 132, and Cal Hartman, 12-3, took 5th at 175. Ross and Hartman are both currently ranked 2nd. Butcherick is 11th. They all wrestled like seniors, Thompson said. Drew's going to be back down to 113 when Sammy Davidson comes back and moves into the 120 position this week. Drew was right there and accumulated a lot of bonus points for us. Demarion wrestled tough, and so did Kane and Cal. They lost close matches on the championship side, but bounced back and kept fighting. Sophomore Luke Fierke, 11-4, was 9th at heavyweight. Sophomore Jesse Egley, 8-7, took 10th at 157. 
the Dodgers finished with 416.5 points. Northwest had 427. Lincoln, Nebraska East, 307.5. Totino Grace of Minnesota, 292.5. And Brandon Brandon Valley of South Dakota, 284, rounded out the top five. Fort Dodge will make its 2023-2024 home debut on Tuesday against Des Moines, Lincoln, and Roosevelt. The Dodgers then host the annual Don Miller Invitational on Saturday. End of story. Area squads in action at Rothler, Emmitsburg. A number of area wrestling teams competed in the annual Bob Rothler Invitational here on Saturday. St. Edmunds saw senior Zach Rosemanth place third at 190 pounds. Rosmanith rebounded from a semifinal loss to post a, f- a fall and a decision for bronze. Sam Meyer, 138, and Adam Walker, 215, both placed sixth for the Gales. In the 165-pound final, Emmitsburg's Justin Wirtz remained undefeated with a pin of Pocahontas area's Ryan Panbecker. Logan Grimm of West Bend Mallard took third at that weight. Ehawk Jace Nelson Brown was the 175-pound champion, as was teammate Ryan Wirtz at 190. John Ackerman and William Lawson of Pocahontas area reached the finals at 120 and 150 pounds, respectively, as did Eagle Grove's Mac Morgan at 126. Hayden Schaefer of Eagle Grove was third at 150. Emmitsburg finished in fifth place, with Pocahontas area taking seventh and Eagle Grove ninth. Hampton Dumont slash Cal won the team title, followed by Lake Mills, Esterville, Lincoln Central, and Spencer. End of story. Local Roundup. Gale JV loses on the road. The St. Edmund Junior Varsity boys basketball team lost to Humboldt 58-31 on Friday night. Elias Kalasha led the Gales with eight points and Evan Christensen had six. St. Edmund hosts Webster City on Tuesday. End of story. Walleye fishing continues to gain momentum. Interest in fishing for walleyes is growing and diversifying. One thing that remains the same when it comes to walleye fishing is that lakes in some regions are going to freeze over in the, in the winter months. The walleye enthusiasts that live in the area that see ice get especially excited about fishing through early ice for walleyes. When you're sure that the ice is safe, here's how you can catch walleyes early in the ice fishing season. Start looking for early season ice walleyes in the same areas where you caught them late in the open water season. If the walleyes were there in late open water, they'll usually still be there, at least for a while. Points, sunken islands, and the edges of flats will all produce. If you're fishing shallow water, a quiet approach will be most productive. Shallow water walleyes and fish in general can get spooked by too much noise or commotion overhead. On the other hand, if you're fishing deeper, say 15 feet or more, you can move around without as much risk of spooking the walleyes. However, it works best to pop a bunch of holes along and over the structure before you start fishing. Get the noisy activity out of the way before you drop a line. Different anglers have different ideas about walleye fishing through the ice. Some like to sit on a spot and hope the walleyes come to them. Others like to move around and try to find the fish. Here's a good rule of thumb. Early in the season, sit still or move a little. Wait them out. As the season progresses and the ice gets thicker and the snow cover increases, the angler who moves around will get more action. A spoon of some sort is what many anglers use for early ice walleyes. 
Actually, spoons are a big part of a walleye angler's arsenal the entire ice season. But spoons have different characteristics, and those characteristics appeal to walleyes in different ways. Rattling spoons are very popular. In stained water, the rattling noise helps fish find your bait. In clear water, the rattle will attract fish from farther away. The new Rattle and PT spoon has a painted hook that adds to the flash. A spoon's design and material that it's made of will affect how it falls. Spoons like a ribbon leech flutter spoon, as the name suggests, has a distinct flutter as it slowly falls. A pinhead spoon is built to fall faster with less flutter. Both have a very important role in fishing through the ice for walleyes. There's no doubt that sonar will enable us to catch more fish. There are times when a walleye will come in and look at your spoon but not eat it. The sonar reveals this. When the fish looks at your spoon but doesn't eat it, it will often eat a minnow on a plain hook. When you initially set up on a spot, drill two holes. Work the spoon under one hole, put a minnow under a bobber down the other hole. When the walleye comes in and looks at but doesn't eat the spoon, they'll often eat the minnow. Vexilar makes several units that enable an angler to see an expanded area of the water column, and that is going to help us turn the lookers into biters. Some very accomplished ice anglers feel the early ice period is best for ice fishing. Find out for yourself how good this early ice action for walleyes can be. Story by Bob Jensen. End of story. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. I'm your reader, Erica Dubin-Bars. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.